0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You've certainly heard the story of Kareem Baratov, allegedly uh, the hacker for hire out of Ancaster, who, of course, has been tangled in a Russian web with the United States. They are looking for his uh, extradition down there to face charges. Uh, And uh, yesterday underwent a bail hearing to see whether he should be allowed out on bail while this whole process makes its way through the courts. Uh, it turns out that uh, they couldn't get to what everything they wanted to get to, I suppose, and now that has been pushed off till Tuesday. Let's bring in Todd White, criminal lawyer, barrister in Toronto, and is with us now. Hello, Todd. How are you today?
1: I'm well, Scott. Thank
0: you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, it, does it happen often that a bail hearing gets put off a day or two?
1: Yeah, it's uh, not unusual nowadays with the uh, the backlog in the courts. Um, the 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 judge hearing the, the hearing may have uh, had a, another matter to deal with in the next couple of days, or he may have just wanted some time to consider all the evidence.
0: So, uh, again, normally I would think, and, and obviously you know more about this than I do, but these are all pretty straightforward, either it's in, in, or, in or out. What makes this scenario more complicated that it's going to take further uh, investigation?
1: Well, it's a complicated case. It's, uh, it's an extradition, so it's not, he's not charged with any criminal offense in Canada. Um, and the U.S. wants him to stand trial in the States. Uh, so the question for the court is whether or not he can be released on bail pending his extradition hearing and not uh, take off. And the Crown's position on behalf of the United States is that he's a flight risk, and that's why they called all the evidence of the, the automobiles he had and the stacks of cash found in his home, and he may well have a series of uh,
0: places to stash money. Uh, the fact that this involves uh, an extradition to the United States, how does that change the process of a bail hearing?
1: It's exactly the same. It's uh, the, same, the same test as whether or not he meets the conditions that he's uh, uh, going to show up for court when required, not going to take off, and not going to commit any criminal offenses while he's out on bail.
0: So is it less about the charge and more of if he, the court feels that he will flee or not?
1: Uh, The charge matters. Uh, The strength of the Crown's case matters, Uh, and that's something we haven't really heard much about, is how strong the case for the prosecution is in the United States.
0: Uh, And again, getting back to my earlier question, the fact that it is, you know, not a a Canadian case, not something that could easily be resolved uh, here, but is much more complicated than that, and obviously serious if the U.S. uh, want him back there, does that make the judge look at it differently?
1: Um, Yeah, because uh, Canada has a history of cooperating with the Americans in in bringing people to, uh, to trial in the states, uh, and that's what the government of Canada's position will be. Um, and extraditions are always taken uh, very seriously because we're doing this on behalf of another country. But at the same time, the judge is going to protect uh, the Canadian citizens' rights, too, and not going to detain them in custody unless it's
0: absolutely necessary. So, in this case, uh, you think what happened was there's just there's just so much depth to what the defense is trying to present and what the judge has to go through. He simply needs more time. It's uh,
1: possible. Again, I'm, I'm not in the judge's head, and right. I don't know why. And it just seems that from the newspaper accounts that I read, uh, the judge just adjourned it to the 11th uh, without any reason. So, we don't know. Uh,
0: the fact that this case has the publicity that it has, does that change the situation? It certainly.
1: Um, High-profile cases, um, the judge may give you know better reasons, but uh, shouldn't change the nature of the case.
0: Uh, lots of chatter, obviously, lately about hacking, Russian involvement, especially with what's going on in the United States. Does that change the, p- the complexion of this in any way?
1: Sure, they're gonna, they're gonna, the court's gonna look at it very seriously and and make sure that he, uh, he comes to a proper decision because uh, you know Canada doesn't want to be seen. As uh, you know, blocking his extradition simply because he's a Canadian citizen.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, are there people who will be advocate him, uh, advocating for him, uh, the fact that he is a Canadian citizen? Should he be extradited?
1: Um, he absolutely can be, um, and we'll, we'll protect his rights here, and we'll make sure that he's only sent to stand trial on proper offenses. Uh, he's looking at, uh, you know, serious jail time in the United States, and and the court will consider that, but it's one of the reasons that uh, the court will send him there. If he's committed a criminal offense in the States, um, especially Russian hacking, uh, they're going to send him there if there's enough evidence to warrant it.
0: Talk about the, uh, the magnitude of these allegations. How serious is this?
1: Um, I, I can't really tell. It's not clear whether or not this is part of the Uh, the hacking that was done during the American election, that would be much more serious. Um, And I don't know what the evidence is. The Crown has not presented its uh, extradition package as of yet, Um, so it's hard to tell.
0: How much evidence does the U.S. have to present here uh, before the extradition uh, hearing in order to warrant all of this?
1: Unfortunately, uh, the law has changed under the Harper government, so they don't have to present very much. It used to be that there had to be a detailed affidavit with all the evidence attached to it. Now the uh, the prosecutor in the United States only has to sign a paper declaring that uh, there's sufficient evidence and setting out a summary of the evidence. So it's not a very high test. And the test itself is whether or not uh, the evidence, if believed, could possibly result in a conviction. So it's a very low threshold.
0: Uh, you said, unfortunately, why? Good or bad?
1: It's bad. It, it's, you know, if you're going to send someone to the States uh, to be tried, uh, there should be you know, sufficient evidence that is set out for a Canadian judge to actually look at, and not just a statement by a prosecutor. And I don't know why it was streamlined, maybe to cooperate more with the, the Americans, but it's uh, simply a, a statement of a prosecutor.
0: Once, uh, if this all goes through, and uh, hypothetically he does go down there, once he is there, does he have any other rights as a Canadian citizen?
1: Uh, No. I mean, he'll he'll have rights uh, after the process, um, but he'll have to retain American counsel and fight the case uh, on American law.
0: Any chance that if he is convicted, he could serve his sentence in Canada?
1: Uh, Absolutely. There's a whole process by which uh, it's it's called the Transfer of Offenders Act, uh, whereby uh, an accused person who's sentenced in the United States can apply to have uh, his sentence served in Canada. Uh, The Americans resist it, because if you get 20 years in America, you'll serve almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. If you you get sentenced to 20 years in Canada, you may be eligible for parole after about Mm 7. So uh, the Americans try to resist... uh, Transfer of offenders back to
0: Canada. Uh, Advocates of Baratov say that uh, he is being used as a scapegoat. The fact that uh, obviously they're not going to get the others that are involved in this from Russia over here to stand charges or into the States for that matter, um, is he being used as a scapegoat? How how concerned does the Canadian government, or is the Canadian government about that, or judicial system rather?
1: Well, the judicial system will look at it very carefully, and that'll be the decision for the extradition judge, uh, him or herself. Uh, they'll have to take a look at what the evidence is and see whether or not there's actually a case um, and I, we haven't heard what that evidence is um, but I, I don't think scapegoating is is, is in the used in the proper context here because you know they have access to this person uh, they if they have grounds to believe that he was the one involved you know he's in Canada he can be extradited he mm-hmm. can get the aggressions possibly but well for sure but uh, so it's not a scapegoat he's just They arrest who they can find.
0: Right. Uh, Why not charged in Canada if he's here while he's committing these crimes on a worldwide basis, I guess?
1: Um, Well, it it depends. I mean, obviously, the American authorities have been investigating it. The Canadian authorities have not. So it's possible down the road there may be Canadian charges, um, so long as they're not duplicate. But the Americans say that the hacking was done in the United States uh, to the benefit of or the detriment of the United States, and so they're allowed to charge with any offense committed worldwide that they believe is in their jurisdiction.
0: So after this case runs its course, uh, he could possibly face charges in Canada as well?
1: It's possible. I mean, um, it it sometimes happens that the uh, Canadian authorities learn of the American investigation and start their own. That's what happened with Garth
0: Drabinsky, for example. Um, with what was presented yesterday in court, uh, talking about uh, ankle bracelets and this sort of thing, is there any way to actually guarantee someone who is out on bail, is there, is there really any way to monitor their, monitor their activity 100% of the time, especially when it comes to access to the Internet?
1: Well, it depends on how good their sureties are. I mean, the, the father testified that he will get rid of Internet access. He'll get rid of all of the, even his TV Um, So it depends on how good the sureties is, and and the sureties seem uh, determined to be good jailers for them because they're prepared to put up their full financial worth, and that speaks volumes to me.
0: Uh, A listener has asked us, what would happen if uh, this, and again, these are all alleged charges now, none of this has been proven in court, but if this all ends up in a guilty plea, what happens to the proceeds Uh, or any of the assets that he would have? In the U.S., you know, it's it's obviously a different setup than it is here. The fact that he is here, what happens to all of his assets here?
1: Well, the Americans uh, can't touch the assets automatically. They may apply. There are various provisions under various acts where they can apply to seize property in Canada, Um, but it's doubtful. All of the assets seem to be in Canada.
0: Uh, Here's what uh, Baratov's lawyer had to say uh, coming out of court yesterday
2: we prepared material that suggests he will not flee. Uh, we've put enough barriers in place to have the public assured that
0: that will not occur, uh, as well as the parents' assurances. Uh, that is uh, Amadeo DiCarlo. Do you know anything about him, Todd? Nothing at all. Uh, apparently he showed up with a chauffeur-driven Rolls-Royce. Do you guys get around like that a lot?
1: <laughs> Never.
0: <laughs> All right. It's intriguing and certainly keeping us interested. Todd White has been with us, criminal lawyer, barrister in Toronto. Thank you, Todd, for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We have certainly seen uh, the horrific images coming out of Syria as that civil war continues. Uh, terrifying images of... Uh, uh gas attacks that have gone on uh, as a result of the uh, the Syrian government uh, now of course this seems to have got uh, the attention of Donald Trump whereas it was only days ago uh, that Rex Tillerson said uh, they're going to let the uh, Syrian people decide the fate of uh, the leadership in that uh, in that country now it looks as if uh, Trump is drawing a line in the sand one he is, criticizing Barack Obama uh, for not doing. Uh, let's bring in Simon Palomar, Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation and with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today?
2: I'm well, Scott. How are you?
0: Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So did Donald Trump just realize this was going on? Why all of a sudden the change after obviously Tillerson and such said, ah, we're going to let this run its course?
2: You know, It's a, it's a very interesting question uh, for a while now. Trump had signaled that Americans should expect a break from uh, the previous administration's policy on Syria. There was speculation you know, during the election that it might that the that a, a Trump presidency might so might go so far as to work with Bashar al-Assad, for example, to defeat um, ISIS or uh, other extremist groups in Syria. Um, so the announcement last week, I mean, it was very much. You know, it was expected in some way, shape, or form that we were going to see a change in policy. Uh, they had telegraphed this. It still didn't make people happy. Uh, but we could have predicted that. This attack um, earlier this week, though, in um, Idlib province in Syria, though, it's not it's not shocking in the sense that we've seen multiple chemical weapons attacks in uh, the Syrian civil war. In 2013, of course, there was a very large scale attack um outside of damascus that may have killed over a thousand people we've seen smaller attacks since uh, created both by government and by um opposition forces but this you know this this idlib province attack it was um by far one of the the most uh, you know vile uh and you know hideous events in in the war so far you know it's and this, is, this has been a, a brutal bloody war that's victimized a lot of civilians. And this really does rank amongst some of the, you know, some of the worst single events, worst single days in the war. And as much as Donald Trump talked uh, a hard line about changing U.S. policy, there are still a tremendous number of people in the U.S. government who, you know, were uncomfortable with that policy. A number of uh, America's allies, which, you know, for all of Trump's talking about you know American allies tend to free ride off the United States, to take advantage of it. Still needs America's, the United States still needs its allies to work with it on on uh, challenges like how to how to get China to change its foreign policy, for example. And I think you know ultimately that was what was dawned on the administration is that talking about you know letting the Syrians take care of Bashar al-Assad when that, that's one thing. It's another thing to stick to that policy when it looks like the government is deliberately targeting civilians when you've got uh, you know, foreign capitals who are saying, listen, this is, this is not acceptable and we're not going to go along with you on this policy. And if you want our backing in the future, it, it I think it just became, it, it's a, it's a bridge. It's a bridge too far, even for this um, very unorthodox
0: administration. So what was, if any, the Russian involvement in this chemical attack and their reaction?
2: You know, it's, it's too early to say whether or not there was any Russian involvement um, directly in attack. Now, that being said, what uh, everybody has to remember is that the Russian government and Russian armed forces are one of um, Syria's the Syrian government's greatest patrons. Russia doesn't provide the same number of soldiers or, uh, or uh, um, militiamen that Iran does, for example, for the Syrian government. But what Russia does provide is air cover. They provide air support for uh um, Syrian troops. And very importantly, Russia provides the Assad government with diplomatic support. So immediately when when uh, reports of this attack came out, there was an effort um, in that the UN Security Council involved the United States to call for an emergency meeting. Uh, and there's been talk of having, for example, an investigation to see what exactly happened, who used the weapons What sort of uh, chemical weapon was used, um, very much like what happened in 2013. Russia, on the Security Council, they have a veto, they're blocking these efforts. So, right. We wouldn't say that Russia was involved in attacking any directly, but Russia certainly aids and abets this uh, regime both in Syria and on the international stage and allows them, gives them that cover, which allows them to uh, do things like this.
0: All right. So when uh, Obama was president, Trump would, uh, you know, uh, criticize and say, don't go into Syria, stay out, uh, mind your own business, per se. Uh, now he's slagging Obama for leaving him this mess uh, and saying that he didn't act. He, he didn't. He, he, you know, the, the line in the in the sand was drawn and then that was it. Uh, does that mean that he now has to act?
2: I don't know if he has to act, but I think there's a tremendous appetite to do something in some parts of the U.S. government. Now, I think what's really important to remember is that, you know, in 2013, after the the large-scale chemical weapons attack in Damascus, people were framing it, the debate, is either you do nothing or the United States gets involved in the war as a full-fledged combatant on the side of the opposition, and goes to war with the Syrian government. Now, the Barack Obama, you know, love him or hate him, it's hard to deny that Barack Obama was very willing to use um, American, uh, the American armed forces to achieve um, his foreign policy goals, you know, at, at times. I mean, Libya, the assassination of uh, Osama bin Laden, the uh, CIA drone program, Barack Obama was very willing to use armed force. I think, you know, Looking at Syria, if his options were to do nothing or to become a full-fledged, you know, party to the war, the, the the obvious decision was to do nothing because nobody in 2013, and I would say very few people today, have a coherent idea of how the United States would in get would get involved in a full-fledged campaign to unseat Assad and then then rebuild the country afterwards. There's no appetite for that in the United States, and how to do it is unclear. But Trump does have options beyond simply, you know, all-out war or doing nothing. Um, given President Trump's, you know, love of tough talk, you know, he's maybe backed himself into a bit of a rhetorical corner, and we would expect, you know, if this is such an egregious, hideous act that we saw and he and he crossed multiple red lines, you'd think he's setting up to then say, okay, and I'm going to bomb the Syrian Air Force now. Fact is, there's a lot of things that the United States can do like um, provide more direct support to insurgents, um, whether it be cash, guns, more training. Uh, they can do a few other things, sanction um, more Iranians who may be helping the Syrian war effort, one way or another. Um, there's, there's a lot they can do short of getting you know fully involved in the war, and I think that's what they're probably going to look at now. I mean, Trump has a credibility problem because... He's only maybe three months into his administration, but he's used a lot of tough, resolute talk when it came to foreign policy, but we haven't seen a lot of follow-through. So this is probably a case where, you know, what we saw earlier this week was, you know, absolutely vile, and to use such strong language to denounce it, you know, I think he does have to do something, but I think there are a whole range of options um, before you get to bombing the Syrian armed forces.
0: So uh, how 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 does the U.S. react when Assad is being propped up by Russia? How would Russia react if, for example, the U.S. tries to go in and take out Assad? I mean, how do you how do you balance that, especially with Trump when at times he appears to be cozy with Russia and, and at times he's you know, he appears to be talking tough? Well, I
2: mean, this really is the story of 2016 and now 2017, isn't it? I mean, this, this Russia, you know, whether it's a tempest in a teapot or a full-fledged scandal, whatever you think the, the ties between you know, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin are, they're certainly front of mind for many people. Um,
0: yeah. Is is attacking, is attacking Assad attacking Putin? If the U.S. goes in and, and attacks Assad in some way, or what have you, I mean, you know, you can decide what the what the retaliation is, is that is that doing the same to Putin? Is that picking a fight with Putin?
2: I think it depends on what you do before you attack the Assad regime. Um, my personal analysis, and this is shared by some other people, is that, uh, you know, Russia is in Syria for its own interests. Right. And... You know, Bashar al-Assad is is useful for Russia's interests. They want to maintain influence in Syria. They want to maintain access to you know, uh, naval bases, for example, in western Syria. They want to keep relations with uh, Iran good because Iran is a major challenge for the United States and divides the United States from some of its um, Arab allies, which allows Russia to then come in and fill that void. So, you know, Assad is useful for Vladimir Putin if there was a you know potential peace deal that involved getting rid of Assad but maintaining Russian influence right. in Syria, maintaining Iranian influence in Syria, I'm fairly confident that they would probably take that deal, that they would sell Assad out. And he's probably aware of that as well. He's more aware of that. So it, it, it boils down to, you know, this is where international politics gets very grimy. It gets into a gray zone, you know, what... Where do, where do the ends and the means, what ends and means, what means justify what ends? It gets very grim. If there was a deal to get rid of Assad, hold him and uh, his uh, people accountable for war crimes, but that gave Russia a big win as well, I believe it could probably be hashed out and the United States could then take action against Assad without enraging the Russians. But, I mean, that would be a very
0: hard cut. Is Russia just waiting for the U.S. to do that, sort of to wash their hands of it? Your problem, not mine.
2: I certainly uh, think they wouldn't mind in some ways if the United States took on the burden of Syria. Uh, you know, you followed this story, you followed the, the, the war there, you'll recall that, you know, several, a couple of times now, Russia has declared, well, you know, most of our combat operations are over or we're dialing them down, we're going to bring people home They've said that a couple times now, and in fact, yeah, they brought some aircraft back. They brought some soldiers home. And then slowly, quietly over the next couple weeks, next couple months, they ramped activity back up. They, they are in a situation right now where, you know, they've, they've cast their, their, their lot with Assad. They want to maintain that influence. They don't have a good substitute for him right now, I suspect. Hmm. They don't know how to get out if the United States were to stumble into Syria and, you know, the old adage, you break it, you bought it, and then become the ones that have to pick up the pieces, that might, uh, the Russians might welcome that, you know, in in some ways. They They would, of course, say they don't welcome it, but in some ways it would fit their interests. But, you know, right now what we're really talking about is, I mean, Russia probably wants a way out. They probably want to end this war as well, but they want to end it on their terms and with a settlement that's good for them. And if the United States can deliberately help them get there or stumble into it and make an error of their own, I think they would take it either way.
0: Considering uh, all of these allegations and Trump's and his people's relation uh, with people or or whatever in Russia, uh, as bizarre as this sounds, could Trump be the guy that somehow brokered some deal with Russia to get this solved?
2: Three or four months ago or maybe six months ago, Trying to recall when exactly the the substantive allegations of of um, you know uh, Kremlin Trump campaign collusion began. A few months ago, Trump may have been that guy. I mean, it's important to remember that when he got elected, he really wasn't beholden to um, the establishment, the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party. He had that ability to do some unorthodox things.
0: Right but too much so water under the now, too much water so under water. the bridge now
2: too much water under the bridge and so compromised now yeah you know in other russia trump news Devin Nunes, a uh, strong you know trump ally on the house intelligence committee has stepped down from the investigation all right
0: that was the next Nunez. point i wanted to talk about your Nunez thoughts is on that so so Nunez
2: is compromised it's become very hard i think for trump to disentangle himself from from uh, vladimir putin and to make that deal with putin it would have to be somebody that the American foreign establishment policy and America's allies trust to do the right thing. And I don't know if they do trust Trump right now. Uh,
0: He's talking about Nunes stepping down, uh, at least temporarily from uh, the, the Russian probe uh, committee. Uh, He says it's the left out to get him, but I understand there's some Republicans behind that uh, as well. Uh, Can he do this temporarily or is he gone for good?
2: I think that Nunes is probably gone for good. He, uh, the, reason he, and the the reasons that he has stepped down have all been of his own making. He didn't need to seek out this intelligence. He didn't need to get it from White House staff. He didn't need to lie about where he got it from, or at least omit where he got it from. And this was, I mean, a colossal error of his own making. And it's it's fairly clear that um, a few power brokers in the Republican uh, Congress ha- have no confidence in him. There are a tremendous number of Republicans who want to get this thing settled one way or another. They want to get to the bottom of it. They want, um, the, they want the Republican president to be able to govern. They want a Republican-led Congress to pass laws. None of that is happening. I mean, this is not the only reason those things aren't happening, but this, this Russia uh, scandal doesn't help. It's a tremendous distraction, and it sucks a lot of air out of the room so I think that Nunes, I mean, from the Republican point of view, had to go. He's compromised. He can't be trusted at this point. And therefore, he can say it's temporary. He can say it's because of left-wing activists, but that's an attempt to save face.
0: Uh, has that same energy sucked Steve Bannon right out of the National Security Council?
2: That's a, that's a more interesting question. Uh, that, that's hard to say. I certainly think it's part of it, but... Um, General McMaster, who runs the Security Council, is, uh, I mean, one of those individuals like um, like Trump's uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, who is, uh, you know, considered um, by Democrats, Republicans, and Independents alike to be, you know, a consummate professional, uh, very intelligent guy, not a politician. He's a national security professional. He's a professional soldier. And after the uh, you know the Flynn disaster, it. The, it became clear that, you know, McMaster would probably only take the job if he knew that this was his organization to run and that he wasn't going to get overruled by uh, political appointees. So I think that, you know, the Bannon resignation from the principals committee, that could be, you know, a part of that is certainly this, this larger Russia challenge that Trump has, but I think a lot of that is probably, um, you know, a, a career Non-partisan professional, just you know, laying down the law in his own in his own policy shop, and 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 he may have threatened to resign. I have no idea, but I I see the it being probably McMaster at work there.
0: Is it a distraction out of the way now?
2: Uh, I hope so. You know, as somebody who works on you know policy issues, and I think a lot of other policy people are are hoping that this is a distraction out of the way. You know, it's not. Completely unusual to have um, political operators, you know, pollsters, political advisors, who work with the president to have them sit in national security council meetings. But generally, they sit in the back, they stay quiet, they observe, they listen, but they don't participate, and they certainly don't vote. This was unprecedented, and getting Bannon off of a off of a panel where he really had no really real reason to be there you know hopefully does just take some of that you know tension out of the room get rid of one distraction he can still stay you know in the room during the meetings but uh hopefully does you know reduce those tensions and allows the national security council to get on with its work
0: simon palomar has been with us research assistant center for international governance innovation simon as always thanks for the insight much appreciated my brother Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. All right, I've been, you know, we could have done this yesterday, and I didn't want to do it yesterday. It's like, nah, I'm not giving this family any more attention than they already have because I just, uh, I do everything in my power to keep uh, the Kardashians uh, out of uh, my kids' lives in any way, and time I ever see them watching it, I raise hell and shut it off and pull the plug and send them outside and all that sort of stuff. So uh, anyway, um, Pepsi has a new ad out or did have a new ad out. It involves Kendall Jenner, and I'm sure you've seen the ad. It's sort of a a mock-up of a Black Lives Matter demonstration, I guess. Uh, And people are totally off the mark using something, something as silly as superficial as, hmm... Miss Jenner, uh, to 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 comment on such an issue by offering an officer a can of Pepsi and hoping uh, everything all goes well. I think, you know, rather than dissecting this ad and why it's bad, you know, I don't need to do that Um, because there's lots there's lots that is bad about this family. Um, And the fact that, well, not so much about the family, but the fact that America and North America loves them. And has our youth have embraced them and look up to them as some sort of figure. So rather than talk about the Pepsi ad, what I think is the real talking point here is I believe this is the end of the Kardashian era. And by that, I mean, when this whole show started 10 years ago or whenever the heck it was, seems like 20, um, It exposed this superficial life to everyone and somehow this became a goal for a lot of young people. Money without a purpose. How does it happen? I don't care. I deserve it. I think with the change that we've seen on the planet, the change that we've seen in America with the rise of Donald Trump, what we've seen... With Syria, what we've seen with terrorism, I don't think people are in the mood for the Kardashians anymore. And thank goodness. And maybe it's because there's a bigger Kardashian getting the spotlight, and that being Donald Trump. And I I, I think that Donald Trump are the, the Kardashians on acid. It's how far this movement has gone. The whole reality TV thing. And I think people are finally realizing this is pretty shallow. And I believe this commercial is the tipping point that the Kardashians have now run their course. And people aren't as impressed with their wealth and stupidity as they once were. Perhaps the president has brought that to everyone's attention. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, Principal, Alyssa PR Communications, as uh, Doug Collins for the Huffington Post, Canada.com, PR Daily, with us now. Alyssa, how are you? Oh, my goodness, Scott. Isn't this, this brilliant? Are is so serious? Isn't it That's brilliant?
3: I'm listening to this yeah. the intro and I'm thinking, yeah. ooh.
0: Exactly. So it's not so much about the stupid Pepsi commercial, but I think this is it for the Kardashian era. I think this whole bubble-headed era has now left us, and we're moving into a much more political movement of the 70s. Or sorry, the 60s. I think we're leaving the flamboyant 80s behind, uh, which all this seems to me is just an an extension of that. And we're getting back into the protest years of the 60s. Am Am I off the mark here? Ah, oh,
3: you know, what I think is, do I think that the Kardashian era has ended? I would say no, not yet. I think, and the reason I say that is because, you know, Ryan uh, Seacrest, who's the executive producer of, of their show, you know, they're a master of creating the storyline. So, you know, there are storylines that, you know, come up organically, and then there's ones that, you know, where she gets robbed, et cetera. And do I think it's the end of the era, no, but do I think that even if they went off the face of the planet, Scott, They would merely be replaced by somebody else. And maybe that somebody else would be more inclined to a protest era or, uh, you know, someone with... More socially conscious, more more
0: interested in politics than their diamond ring?
3: But you need to understand, but, not you need to understand, but I, I think what I'd like to point out is that, I know you don't want to talk about the ad, but... You know, in what go ahead. Pepsi, what Pepsi? Oh, thank you. What Pepsi did was is that they first of all they didn't pull the ad off right away and let it run a day, and then they said, well, we missed the mark. And who did they apologize to? Did they apologize to Black Lives Matter? No. Did they apologize to the police? No. Did they apologize to the world? No. They apologized to um. Oh, her name has just escaped my mind.
0: To Jenner? <laughs> yes. To Kendall.
3: Kendall. For putting, her, for putting her in
0: that si- in, Why? For putting her putting in that her situation? Putting
3: her in that situation. Oh, yeah.
0: come on. How oh, can you... Oh,
3: I'm telling you, you read the apology, Scott, you will be appalled. If you're appalled now, you'll be double
0: appalled. So...
3: And they apologized to her. And I thought, what? What is that about? And then it made me think that maybe this whole thing is orchestrated. Because, mm. like, let's think about it. No conglomerate, no brand established as Pepsi is, like Coke, like anything from Unilever or Procter & Gamble, nobody does anything without market testing. Nobody does, if there's a commercial going on and they want to make sure that they have the right tone and the right people and the right message, you go to your polling or you go to your market research and your focus groups and you sit behind the smoke glass you know, as the client and eat the cheesies and the candies and listen to what everyday Canadians or Americans have to say. There's no way that Pepsi did not do this. And if they didn't, well, shame on them. But I think that their structures and, and you know, their processes are so well entrenched that I can't believe that that would never happen.
0: Maybe they're apologizing to Kendra Jenner for the same reason I'm saying is because they've officially just killed the whole Kardashian era with that spot. Maybe that's why they're apologizing. Yeah,
3: I think they probably vaulted her into it and kept her safe in a bubble from it and by apologizing to her so so, let's look at the timeline they run it it's a social media execution okay so this is where this, this isn't breaking in between you know the super bowl or you know during a playoff game this is happening on social media they knew that there would be social media outcry that happened Check." They let it roll for 24 hours while people are getting good and mad to the point where Martin Luther King's daughter weighs in. Yeah. You know, if only Daddy had a Pepsi while he's yeah. being manhandled by the police. Wow. And then they say, oops, I think we missed the mark. And not only did we miss the mark, but you know what? Uh, we would like to apologize to Kendall Jenner because of this. And I'm like, what? You want to apologize to Kendall Jenner? Do they and, think it the American- think, and it makes me think that... This was orchestrated. They knew that this would happen. They didn't want her to be part of uh, perceived as the blowback, as being part of the execution or the creative concept of this commercial. Mm. And um, they're going to own that, it. that was part of the deal. And then, look honestly, Scott. When's the last time you really talked about Pepsi? Good point. Right? Never. Yeah. And everybody, and I even saying to my husband yesterday, I said, you know, this is Pepsi trying to be, I like to teach the world to sing. Yeah. Which, by the way, I could still sing to you word for word. <laughs> so, you know, and the other thing, too, is, and, and you were sort of like talking around this, is that, and we've talked about this before, you know, do companies, should they weigh in on moral issues? You know, when is it okay for a brand to weigh in? And, you know, really, you have to think long and hard about what your brand stands for. And in this, in this case, we're talking about sugar and water. So, you know, for Pepsi <laughs> to actually even wade in on this issue as a beverage company, and, you know, you and I have been around during we were the Pepsi generation, for a, a brand to wade in takes a very deliberate and purposeful, conscious decision to do that. Because this is about as off-brand as you can get, and you know, all the experts are saying, you know, this is a Coke thing. You know, Coke has weighted into this into this before, and they have a history of it. So, if Coke did this, we could almost stomach it.
0: So, does this good P, uh, bad PR is good PR? I mean, no matter what happens, yeah, we're going to get so really much we're going to get so much social media exposure. It's going to be worth it. And well, and yeah. here and here's the plan B. When it does go south, this will pull us out.
3: Well, you know. You hit the nail on the head, and, you know, some people say, you know, good PR, bad PR is is good PR. You know, any PR is good PR. let well, to be honest with you, uh, you know, I do not subscribe to that notion. And the notion is, is that you better be pretty damn savvy, if I can say that on chorus radio. You better be pretty savvy on how you're going to pull yourself out of this.
0: Yeah, almost. So, the plan B is almost has to be as good as the initial plan, really. Cause oh, the that's, plan
3: B yeah. has to be better yeah. than the plan A. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to play this game, you have, uh, you've got a whole strategy thought through. You know, air, commercial, social media, blowback, let it go for a day. Let's get people really, really mad. Let's come out with a quasi-apology, and it really was a quasi-apology, to be quite honest, of sorts. Um, let's protect our star Kendall Jenner, who we don't want her her reputation uh, to be scathed because of this. And boy, how do you boy, explain
0: that, though? How do you explain the defense the defense of, of Jenner? I mean, that, that like she didn't know what she was getting into. Come on, I think it
3: was a contractual thing. Like I just think he, So if it do? goes south, I mean, you
0: got to dig me out.
3: Well, you, you know, I don't know if she may have thought about that, but certainly the people who do her contracts would have thought about that. Hmm. And they probably said, "You're going to need to apologize to her if things go south." Somebody smart figured that out. Wow! You know, but honestly, I mean, this story—you know—you didn't want to do it yesterday, and was I expecting your call? Well, of course, I
0: was, Scott. <laughs>
3: but, but that's the know. only
0: reason I called because I knew you were at the other end.
3: Yeah, but you know what, you know, the other thing too is is that you and I both know this story was gonna have more than a twenty four hour shelf life.
0: Yeah. So were they attempting uh We'd Like to Teach the World to Sing? Were they? Because, I mean, you know, that seemed to hit the nail on the head, and as you mentioned, you can still sing it today. So um they were trying the same thing, did it successfully. I don't know if you watched the CTV news last night, but they ended their report by actually playing it, which was beautiful.
3: And what was what was her final words, or his final words?
0: Something know? like, they should have just bought a Coke or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they
3: should have just given him a Coke <laughs> yeah, or should exactly. have bought him a Coke. And I just, I really, my husband and I, we, we laughed our heads off at that one. But, um, um, you know, I think they knew there would be inevitable comparisons to Coke, but there's been a you know, 30, 40 year history of the Pepsi challenge of uh, which tastes better, you know, Pepsi or Coke. And so I think that they understood that there would be inevitable comparisons to that and that they would probably dig up the uh, like to see, you know, like mm. teach the world to sing commercial. So I think that they had thought all of this through. You know, the more I look at it, like when I first saw this and the backlash that occurred, I'm thinking, well, how did this even get past the storyboard stage? <laughs> yeah. What, Kendall Jenner's going to like solve, you know, uh, the greatest morality issues happening in the USA today by giving a white cop a white girl, giving a white cop a, co- you know, a Pepsi? Yeah, that's so, a great idea. Next. So, you know.
0: so what now? I mean, you talked about if you're going to do this, you've got to have a strong plan B, but now you need a plan C. What happens now?
3: First of all, I got to be honest with you. I don't think anything's going to happen to their brand. I think people are going to buy Pepsi, maybe even more. I don't think they're going to, you know, be hurt by this at all. As sad as that sounds,
0: you know what? What if we see on a new on news footage people demonstrating and actually bringing Pepsi's to the demonstration, a hand to police? Then it's well, knocked out of the park, isn't it? Well, yeah. From a PR perspective.
3: Yeah, like, we're just going to bring you Pepsi. Please don't hurt me. Don't shoot. Don't hurt me.
0: Here's a Pepsi. Yeah. You know? Hands so in the I air mean, hands in the air, holding a Pepsi.
3: Yeah, hands in the air. Wait, you know what? <laughs> Wait till next week. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we might say that. We might see it, rather.
3: I know. Then you can say, I knew it.
0: All right, I can't let you go without uh, asking you uh, about Premier Wins ads, trying to sell the electricity uh, discount that's coming up in June. Um, is there any way to possibly sugarcoat this? Uh, should she just have let it go silent? Obviously, we don't need to to be notified of a change in our bill. Opening it up, we'll, we'll discover that. Uh, good play, bad play here.
3: You know, what I think about this is that, you know, WINS counselors and, you know, their war room, they're, I think they're popping a, a lot of narratives into the air to see what happens. They're almost like trial balloons. I I believe that they cannot ignore the hydro issue because to ignore it would also be political suicide. So if you're going to meet it head on, do it this way. And everybody likes to save money. Like, I'm sure that they're sitting in a room going, well, everybody likes to save money. So let's talk about that. You know, I mean, her numbers are in the gutter right now. So there's nowhere to go but up. The other things, you know, that you're going to be hearing her talk about. For example, we talked about this. You know, there was a survey going on uh, specifically in the York Regional District School Board talking about bullying and talking about LGBTQ bullying. So, you know, there's a number of narratives that she's popping out there, and I think it's all setting them up to you know, we are the liberals and we're not the conservatives. And if you're concerned about social issues and social impact and, and freedoms, you know, you might want to take another look at us. So I think that you and I will be discussing a number of different things as we go on over the next 17 months and seeing which narrative sticks. And when they find a narrative that sticks, they'll... They'll put this out, they'll do their polling, they'll get their numbers, and they'll see where the where the split is and who's for them, who against who's against them, and then they'll decide from there.
0: All right, I'm gonna ask you something pretty weird because uh, it's the end of the segment here. And um, you know you I'm guessing you would give executives advice, uh, people advice on when they go out and they present themselves, whether well, they're doing a meeting in front of twenty people or two hundred people or what have you you would perhaps give them tips on how to best present themselves correct correct can you tell me and and as a man who's over 50 can you mm-hmm. tell me why it is that men that are older than me don't trim their eyebrows i see this uh-huh. on donald trump i've seen it on. i've seen it on the richest men I've seen it on the poorest men. I've seen it on the smartest, the dumbest. What is it? And and I know these people go to barbers, and I know a barber would look at that and, and, you know, it would be a natural. It's the first thing out of the mouth. What is it about old guys and bushy eyebrows?
3: I don't know, Scott. You know, I said to my husband, and I don't know if he's listening right now, but if he is, he's going to be laughing his head off because I said to him, I said, oh, my God, honey, your 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 brows, they're drooping. They're like, touching your lids. And he says, I said, you, you know, I could just trim them for you. And he goes, no, you don't. He takes his finger, wets it, and whoop. Yay! The other eyebrow, and, zoop, the <laughs> other eyebrow. and I thought, well, there you go. So what I think you have to do is you have to pick your battles. Why do guys have true, you know, bushy eyebrows? They don't see it as important, but at, at least maybe they're they're trimming their nose hairs and their ear hairs. So you know you gotta.
0: But every barber real. must. Everybody gets a haircut. Every barber must point this out to them. They must say no. I want. They must say no. I don't want you to touch them. All right. It's well, like it's like, like it's campaign. it's like you know we as we go older as we get older we lose testosterone but we get eyebrows.
3: You need a campaign. Just say no to bushy eyebrows. I don't get it.
0: Uh, you know, it's to say it. I, you know, it, it's it's as if uh, you know we're we're selling old men erection drugs, but we're letting them go around with bushy eyebrows. It just it's a shame. It does make sense. It's uh, a shame. Alyssa <laughs> Freeman has been with us, <laughs> Alyssa PR. Thank you as always.
3: As always, Scott. Thank you. I
0: don't think I got an answer to my question, though. Did I?
3: Yeah. Well, they shouldn't have it. But
0: uh, anyway, let's move on. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML.